Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. praying about this spring and early summer, what I might preach on for my fall sermon series, I realized in thinking about it that I've been teaching John's gospel for five years. And uh, we're at chapter 18, and I thought, you know, such a, such a small percentage have had the opportunity to hear me teach John's gospel, so I thought, you know, I'd have to preach it. But if I preach it like I teach it, we would be here for the rest of my life. And so I thought, so I've got to take what I've learned from John's gospel and somehow form it into a preaching series. And it's been kind of fun for me to do that. But let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take the first part of John's gospel up to chapter 12. And we're going to do this fall sermon series. And then we're going to take the upper room and the passion and the cross and resurrection, and do that during Lent, because that seems an appropriate time to do that. So today is kind of an introductory to John's Gospel, as well as kind of the early part of chapter 1. And I'm going to be cramming a lot into this, so try to hang with me when I do this. And the first thing I want to say about John's Gospel is, when you compare it to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's quite unique, and it's unique for a variety of reasons. The first reason that John's gospel is unique is if you were to put John's gospel up next to and just lay the gospels out by one another, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the what gospels? Synoptic. Why are they called the synoptic gospels? Because they're similar. The prefix sin is the same prefix for synonym means similar. And optic, see that? I got an amen already. And optic, uh, synoptic, is because they appear or look similar at sight, first sight. And if you look the way they are laid out, it's the same way. They've got similar stories as well, similar flow. But John's gospel is completely different in terms of how it's laid out in in a lot of its content. For example, the upper room description in the synoptic Gospels is much shorter, and yet all three Gospels have what's called the institution of the Last Supper, what we do every Sunday in the communion service. John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, almost one-third of his Gospel is spent in the upper room, and yet it does not contain the institution of the Last Supper. Did you ever note that? Just a fascinating little sidebar to John's Gospel. And it's because John figured by the time he wrote his Gospel, everybody understood the institution of the Last Supper. Everybody participated in it. It was part of the early church. It was contained every Sabbath 
their Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, when they got together. Every meal. Paul had written about it in Corinthians. It wasn't necessary. Paul wrote his gospel approximately 30 years after the others. The others were written in the early 60s, most likely. And maybe around 90 or the early 90s, 25, 30 years later, Paul, John decides to write his gospel. Paul had written the institution of the Last Supper in the late 40s, so it, was, it came much later than that. And so that's one of the unique aspects of John's gospel. And really, in many ways, if you think about John's gospel, he wrote it after three years of walking with Jesus in the flesh and 60 years after walking with Jesus in the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, walking with Jesus. He was now an old man. And he had seen the other Gospels and heard the other Gospels. And he said, I think it's now time for me to write my Gospel. He had a unique perspective. He was the only apostle who wrote a Gospel. I know there's a debate about Matthew. But really, in many ways, I think there's a great case for the fact that Matthew's Gospel was not written by the Apostle Matthew. John was unique in that John was not only one who walked with Jesus for three years, but the only apostle at the cross and watched Jesus die. He was one of two apostles who saw the empty tomb. We don't know about the others, but he saw the empty tomb. He saw the risen Christ. He was also unique in other ways. I mean, think about some of the terms that we read about John in his gospel and in other places. John was known as one of the two brothers, James and John, a son of thunder. Now, what does that tell you about him? An active teenager in the least? Possibly back in those days, a gang member? He was a fisherman. Fishermen typically were not wallflowers. They were not gentle. He probably had quite a reputation. And yet at the same time, this son of thunder, on the one hand, this wild guy, when you go to John 18, he was allowed in when Jesus was going through his trials to the high priest's home because he was known by the high priest's family. He was well connected to the priestly family, the high priestly family. And the most incredible line of all in John's gospel. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Now, let me qualify that just for a second. I don't think that John is saying, I'm his favorite. I don't think that. Someone bought me a T-shirt one time that said, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. And I don't think John is saying that. 
What he's saying is, I know I'm loved by Jesus. There is no question in my mind. I watched him die on a cross for me. I watched his life. I experienced his love. He washed my feet. I saw the love in his eyes. I experienced his fellowship for three years. He laid down his life for me and then he rose again. He has the power over sin and death and he welcomed me into his fellowship as one of his own. And I know I'm loved by him and I know I have eternal life. And that's why I'm writing this gospel because I want you to experience that same love. And so I'm writing this gospel for you. John wrote other writings in the New Testament. We know. He wrote the epistles. First John, second John, third John. Completely different purpose to those. He was writing as the elder to the church to encourage the church during times of struggle, persecution, false teaching, and heresy. He wrote the book of Revelation, which everybody always wants sermon series and teachings about. But really, in many ways, Paul, John was writing to the seven churches, some of the churches of which Paul wrote to as well, to encourage those churches during a difficult time, much like Paul did. For example, the church at Ephesus. And he tried to encourage them, but there was an addition. Because he had a vision of heaven. Because he had a vision both of what was going on with the church at large during that time, but also an additional vision of heaven and the second coming and what was coming. He felt this burden to convey it to the church at large. And so we have this unusual book called the book of Revelation. But here, John wanted people to understand the essential gospel. He wanted people to understand the depth of his love. Jesus' love. The love that John experienced. His life. His passion. The cross. The resurrection. And the most extensive teaching on the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Which was given in the upper room. But John also wrote, I think, kind of after the length of his life. He's an elderly man now. He decided to write kind of a eulogy for Jesus. Because what do we do when we eulogize someone? When you think about someone's life, someone that you love, there's usually a couple of things that we do with the eulogy. The first is... We think about themes in their life, character traits of their life. We describe them in certain ways. And that's exactly what John did with his gospel. He has themes throughout his gospel about this person, Jesus. And we see a couple of those right off the bat in the first chapter. For example, he talks about Jesus being the source of life. In him was life. And the life 
was the light of all men. So you see these two themes right off the bat that he weaves throughout his gospel. Contrasted with darkness. Contrasted with sin that leads to death. He talks about being full of grace and truth. And he goes on to talk about Jesus being a gift. And the gifts that he offers, that's the grace. And he talks about Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And later on, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. You see these themes, which is what we do when we eulogize someone. Character traits. But we also tell anecdotal stories. If you ever think about someone when they die, we tell stories about them. And what does John, John do? He tells these long stories, very unlike the other Gospels, that tell these short snippet stories. For example, in John chapter 3, you've got this long story about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And then John chapter 4, you've got this story about the woman at the well. And then John chapter 5, you've got this story about the paralyzed man, the guy paralyzed for 38 years. And then John chapter 9, you've got about the man born blind. And then John chapter 11, the interaction with Lazarus being raised from the dead and Martha and Mary. And then John chapters 13 through 17, that long explanation of what happened in the upper room, a few hours A few hours in the upper room and John spends almost a third of his gospel on a few hours because it so impacted his life because it was such an intimate time. That's how John thought about him. But I think there's one more layer that John did with his gospel that is so brilliant That you really have to take a look at the first three chapters to understand where he's going with his gospel. He's really trying to unfold in Jesus, in his gospel, that this is the story of salvation. This is the scripture embodied in a person for all people. If you accept him. Because The first words, in the beginning, in the beginning, where do we see that? Genesis. The same first three words. Look in your bulletin. Look in your Bible. Genesis 1-1, John 1-1. The same first three words. In the beginning, in the beginning. That's not by accident. What John is saying is, you see in Genesis, in the beginning, of creation. And then you see this person, Jesus, was active in creation. He's the Lord of creation. He's also the Lord of redemption. Same three words. Okay, so that's the book of Genesis. And then John 1.29, you see John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In what book is the Passover Lamb talked about? Exodus, the second book of the Bible, right? Okay, then we get to the end or the middle, toward the end of John chapter 2. What does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple. What is the book of Leviticus concerned with? The holiness of the temple and all the laws around the temple. So what do we have so far? We've got the book of Genesis. We've got the book of Exodus. We've got the book of Leviticus. And we're halfway through John chapter 2. 
Then we get to John chapter 3. What are we dealing with in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, who is an expert in the law. Okay, so we're dealing with the law and what the law is all about and what the intention of the law is, which is loving the Lord. And Nicodemus doesn't get the first point. Okay, so he's dealing with the book of Deuteronomy. Right. And then also in in, in, uh, John chapter three, we have this reference to I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, which he's making a reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, which is found in what book? Numbers. So in the first, stick with me here, in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, John, in his first three chapters, has the first five books of the Old Testament referenced. That is not by accident. He's saying this Jesus came to fulfill God's plan of salvation. This Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, all of history. And there's no mistake. That is so cool. If you really understand, it's not an accident. And John, at the end of his life, said, I've got to get this out there. I've got to make sure people understand. This is who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Okay, now that we've covered the introduction, now we're going to talk about this first section of Scripture. Briefly, trust me. First of all, that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He is God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. People love to say that the Bible never said Jesus was God. That Jesus never said He was God. And if people say that, they miss the point of Scripture. They miss what Jesus says. And you've got it in this first verse in John. In the beginning was the Word. Go back to Genesis 1 again. In the beginning, God. John is mimicking Genesis 1. He's saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. He's saying the same thing. The Word is Jesus. The Word became flesh. We see that in verse 14. And the Word was God's active person of Himself in creation. We see it in the creation story. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and creation unfolded. And so Jesus is the Lord over creation. And he's also the Lord over redemption. He was God's creative force at the beginning of time. And then we see that unfold in John's gospel. As he turns water to wine. As he feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. As he walks on water. 
as he heals people, as he raises Lazarus from the dead, as he himself raises from the dead. He is Lord over creation and Lord over redemption. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he is Lord over creation and over redemption. See, the reality is, God is introduced in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. God the Father, in the beginning God, that's the Father. And God's speaking, that's the Word. And that's Jesus. God's active person in creation. And then we're told by John, and the Word became flesh. Because this person, who is God, becoming flesh, becomes our perfect sacrifice for sin because he is holy God and holy human. And what's amazing is, he goes on to say, and he came into the world that he created, the world that is his own, and the world did not know him. He even takes it a step further. He says, to his own people, and his own people didn't know him. And I don't know if that amazes you, it amazes me. But let's talk about the word world just for a second. When the word world is used in creation, it's in, in Scripture, it's actually used three different ways. First of all, creation. When the word world is used about creation, it's actually a good world. And God made this, and it was good. And God made this, and it was good. And God made human beings, and it was very good. So the word world there is good. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world there is neutral. Because we can choose God, but we don't have to choose God. It's neutral. We have a choice as part of the world. And when Scripture talks about the world did not know him or the world rejected him, it's negative. So the term world depending upon the context in Scripture, is used three different ways, positive, neutral, or negative. Just so you understand that. And it's interesting because Paul in Romans 1 has this same idea as he unfolds his gospel, which is what the first eight chapters of Romans talks about, the gospel. And he talks about how Who God is, is evident in the world because the world is a reflection of his handiwork, his creativity, his brilliance. And it says who who God is, is evident from creation. We can know him. And he goes on to say, and everyone's without excuse. And that's kind of what John is saying. Jesus, who made the world, came into his world. And the world that he created, people didn't know him. How can that happen? How can that be? It's kind of the same way that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And they knew he made the world. If anyone knew that he made the world, they knew he made the world. And they decided they didn't need him. They wanted to be God. 
It's the same decision we have. Do we want God to be our God? Or do we want to be our own God? It's the same decision we have. And it says, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace is God's gift. Our creation, the creation of our very being, is God's gift. And God is truth. And we can turn our back on that. That's what Satan did to Adam and Eve. Said, did God really say? Or did God say something else? And deceived Adam and Eve. And we can be deceived. We can deceive ourselves. We can turn away from the truth if we choose to. But Jesus is full of grace and truth if we're willing to hear him. If we're willing to see him. And this section in John 1 is concluded by the word became flesh. And flesh has two meanings in Greek. And if you've been through the discovery class, you'll know this. The first meaning of flesh is this, my body, what God has given me to walk this earth with. And it is neutral. I can use this body that God has given me as an instrument for good or an instrument for evil. I choose. But then this is also flesh. And my flesh has a tendency towards evil. The two Greek words are soma and sarx. Sarks has a tendency to want to choose evil. My flesh. But what Jesus became is human in bodily form. In other words, every way that we are except for sin. He was born a baby. He has the same needs a baby has when he was a baby. And I've been exposed to two babies this summer, my two grandsons. I understand the needs of babies again. And Jesus was a baby. He was helpless. He was dependent on his parents. Jesus, as we see in Scripture, got tired. He got hungry. He got angry. And we forget that anger is a part of who God is. Scripture talks about be angry, but do not sin, though. And we need to learn what that means. Because we were created in the image of God. Jesus was fully human, but did not sin. And yet he was fully God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, what Jesus modeled right off the bat was community. He lived with his family. Then he lived with his apostles. And if we go back in Scripture... We see that Jesus always was about relationships. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That we learn about this grace and this truth in community with each other. Loving God and loving each other. That when Jesus came in the flesh, he did not come in isolation. That God in his very essence is community. Go back to Genesis again. Either look in your bulletin at the very end of the Genesis reading or look on page one of your Bible. Genesis 1.26. Let us create 
humans in our image. Who is the us? Who is the our? It is the Trinity. We see it in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God, that's the Father. And a wind from God blew over creation, that's the Holy Spirit. And God said, let there be, that's Jesus. The first three verses, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that when you get to verse 26, let us make man in our image. Let us make human beings in our image. That's the Trinity. God in the very beginning says, I am about community because I, in my essence, am relationship. I'm community. I'm love. And I want you to share that. And so Jesus, when he began his public ministry immediately began gathering disciples around himself. And that's why he called us into being in a church, to share community with one another. We deceive ourselves in so many ways that we don't have to live as God calls us to, that we don't have to be in relationship to Jesus Christ. That we don't have to understand him to be God and the Lord of our lives. That we don't have to live in community with one another. That we can be in isolation. There's so many ways we can deceive ourselves. And yet John writes his gospel so that we would understand what it means to experience God's love and God's community. That God went to the length of sending his son. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced what is called unrequited love. If you know what unrequited love is. Love that you give that is not returned. Most people have experienced that at one point in their life. Whether it be love that you had for a girlfriend or a boyfriend that rejected you. Or a spouse that divorced you. Or a child that rejected your love. Or a friend that betrayed you. But God so loved the world. And the world did not know him. And Jesus came to his own people that he loved so dearly. And his own people did not know him or accept him. And Jesus comes over and over again to us. Because he loves us. And he tries again and again. And God sent his son Jesus to die for us. Because he loves us so much. And John the gospel writer says, I've experienced this. I know what it is to be beloved by Jesus. And I want you to know it. And that's why he writes his gospel.
Think about the mess that we've experienced on this island in the past month. Because of broken relationships. Because of the fallenness of lives. Because of creation gone awry. Think about this hurricane marching towards the East Coast. And the struggle and the pain in people's lives. God promises that he will love us and be present to us throughout whatever we go through. And God promises us eternal life to be with him forever where there is no pain or sorrow. That's why he came for us. And John wants us to understand this gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, there is so much mess in this world. We've seen it on our little island over the past few weeks. The fears that come our way, the worry, the fret, the brokenness. Lord, I pray that we might pause and remember the gift that we've been given in Jesus. The grace and how you seek to reach us. To help us to know that we are beloved as John knew. Lord, I pray that the truth of this gospel would penetrate our hearts and our minds and our lives. The power of your salvation to break into us. That you offer us light and life and the power to become and be your children. Lord, move in us by your Holy Spirit to help us to know this love and to live in your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.